back to our study of the pastoral letters. Uh, we're so glad that you could join us again for this dive into some of the more specific writings of Paul, because he's writing to an individual here. And oftentimes we see Paul writing to a group of people, to a group of Christians, to a particular region where the church is, is located. Here, he's writing to someone who's very close to him, a son in the faith, he describes him as, and that's Timothy. And he is dealing with some concerns and some struggles that they're having in the city of Ephesus. And if we read the historical account in the book of Acts, we see that Paul and Timothy uh, went together. They, they traveled on missionary journeys. And, and Paul stayed for quite a long time in Ephesus to try and get this church firmly established. And there was so much opposition because there was so much in the culture and in the uh, society that surrounded this church that was influential and that was destructive. And he knew that there was trouble on the horizon. So Timothy serves as Paul's um, mouthpiece, uh, safe keeper of the church there, and a defender of the faith. So Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him and to give him instruction. Now, last uh, time we talked about chapter 1, an encouraging message to Timothy to watch out for false teachers and false doctrine and people who teach a different doctrine. And we talked about what that means. Our understanding of doctrine today really has a lot more to do with the different practices of denominations uh, or different brand names amongst Christianity. The doctrine that they're talking about is far deeper and far more substantial in its difference than what we experience. Um, one might consider it something more akin to the divide between mainstream Christianity and, say, um, Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness or something along those lines. Um, we appreciate and, and love everyone, but we have some pretty sharp disagreements as to the nature of the gospel and the meaning of Scripture when it comes to comparing these groups. Uh, and so there's no disrespect meant. It's just um, that's a much wider chasm than, say, um, the Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church or the Churches of Christ that I am a part of and the Baptist Church. Uh, there's differences, but uh, we can acknowledge that there are some doctrinal things that are far different and more substantial. Um, and if we avoided certain subjects, uh, a Baptist and a member of the Church of Christ wouldn't even know they went to different churches if they just avoided a couple of specific subjects. However, you're going to have a tough time if you're in a biblical conversation with someone who's a part of Jehovah's Witness. You're going to have a really hard time not noticing that difference because that doctrine is starkly uh, divided. So that's what we're talking about. Now let's go to chapter 2. And chapter 2 can be a chapter that causes some challenges because it gives some specific rules that have come into play in the shaping of worship practice and church operation in modern times. And, and it is a source of some decisions that have been made about how the church ought to operate. And we need to be aware of what we're doing and, and what's going on there. So let's, let's dive in. Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, 
us. See, pray for everyone. Why? Because God wants to save everyone. Uh, pray for the people who are in high authority. And, and he's praying here also for peaceful, quiet lives. Now, this is really important when you think about this time and this place because there's a lot of turmoil that's beginning to happen between the Roman government and Christianity. And uh, Paul is acknowledging we should pray for our leaders that they make good decisions because peace uh, and, and quietness and the ability to go about your business leads to quality evangelism. You know, um, you and I might not vote for the same people all the time in every election. Um, there's a very divided, deeply divided country that we find ourselves a part of in the United States over certain political matters. And um, so we know there's differences of opinion out there, and I have people I prefer to see in power or uh, elected to certain offices, and you might have a different one. But be that as it may, uh, I hope that our leaders, whoever they may be, whatever political affiliation or ideology they might hold, I hope that they will make decisions that lead to a, a greater degree of freedom for me personally, uh, particularly as it pertains to my ability to share the gospel. And I also hope that they will make decisions that lead to peace. Because in peaceful conditions, the gospel is able to prosper. Now, can the gospel do a lot of great work in non-peaceful conditions? Yeah, look at the first century. Look at the second and third centuries. Uh, look at how the church grew. And look at how it's grown in times of trouble, wartime, economic crisis. We see people turn to faith. But for Paul to do his job, he wanted peace, and he wants to pray for peace, even through the people in power and in authority. And we pray for these people. Why? Because God wants to save all of them. So we need to think of them in that way, too. Verse 5, uh, verse five For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And now, as he goes from talking about prayer, don't forget the context we're in. He is giving instruction to Timothy, and here is the instruction. We need to work on the prayer life of this church. We need to work on, on the way that these people are praying and interacting with one another and interacting with God. So prayer is important. Now, how are they to pray? Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Does that mean that we are to pray with a particular posture? No. We believe that this is figurative language, which states that we are to have hearts that are pure, attitudes that are pure. We need to be free from conflict in our life in order that we may approach the throne of God. And now we come to verse 9. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. I'm going to stop here. This is some difficult stuff today in 2022, all right? Because uh, as time has gone on, the role of women in our society, in our workplaces, even in our families, has evolved and changed. In the church, it has not moved as quickly. Now, there are some reasons for that. And some of it is cultural. 
Some of it is an, an understanding of these types of passages that have led to decisions and doctrines being formed around it. Now, let me just state here on the front end, I do not, um, if a congregation of people is following after the Word of God and they are happy with believing that they are doing the absolute best they can to serve God's will, then then I am good with that, all right? Um if there are disagreements within that body about what certain things mean, those need to be worked out, and they need to be worked out with grace and love and patience. Um, I do not condemn other people who claim Jesus Christ based on their practices. I might disagree with them. I might have different preferences than them, but I'm not going to condemn them. And I think the church would be a lot stronger if we took that approach. Hey, here's my ideas and here's your ideas and let's see what the Bible says and I think it means this and you think it means that. Um, and we might change some minds or we might agree to disagree, but we're still going to love each other. And we're going to hope that we, we've, we, we've given it our absolute best and that we'll see each other in heaven one day. But this issue is troublesome because it, it impacts people in a deep way, particularly women. And we have to be mindful of that. We have to acknowledge that these verses have been used for generations to, to harm women. There are some awful things that went on in, in the early centuries of the Roman Catholic Church, um, even in later centuries in their history, and in other churches. Um, we can point to reformers and people who were important in church history who were just awful when it came to women. Martin Luther, one of them. Um, we, we have to acknowledge our history. And we have to acknowledge that these verses have been weaponized at times um, against certain groups and against certain people, and they've been harmful. So we have to accept that. Uh, as far as their meaning, we need to be careful with that too. Because not only could we be missing the point, but we could be opening ourselves up to a criticism that we don't want to invite. And that is to, to invite a, a delegitimizing of our ability to interpret Scripture. Because when you think about what we do with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, it is a bit unique compared to the rest of Scripture. I can give you an example within the very chapter. So let, let's, let's move on very slowly, but, but I'll give you that example in a minute. Suffice to say, this is a controversial topic. Lots of different opinions on um, the role of women in our worship services. Um, there are more people on a more conservative end of that spectrum and people on a more progressive end of that spectrum. Um, and I'll have a few more words about that later, but let's work through this passage and then we'll come back to that. Okay, so he talks about the modest appearance of women and to be adorned with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay. <laughs> now, if you're getting a little squeamish reading that, I can understand why. It doesn't exactly fit the modern definition of political correctness. Um, and that's fine. The Bible doesn't often do that. So it's, it's okay. So let's break this down. First, let's talk about the context of the writing. Ephesus was known to have a problem with a sect of religious people that were led by women who were infiltrating the church and trying to pervert the gospel and disrupt and divide. 
Okay, so we have to accept the historical context and understand the principle that we've approached Scripture with, and that is we're reading someone else's mail. So be very careful drawing doctrinal conclusions about today for things that were written thousands of years ago, okay? So that's, that's important historical context. Secondly, how we read and interpret this we need to be careful about. When we go back to verse 8, we see men should pray lifting holy hands. Now, we have already said that does that's not a command for a particular posture in prayer. And yet, as we move down through the passage, and we see that, you know, women are to adorn themselves in a certain way, and that uh, they're not permitted to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet, uh, we, we take a very literal approach to those things. And we say, well, that is a rule for all time for all Christians. All right. Well, why do we cherry pick that verse and say this is a literal command that Paul is giving for all Christians for all time? And we look at the verse just prior to it and say, well, there's clearly figurative language there. And we're just going to ignore that and, and, and put it with the context. We have to be careful. Now, are there some things that are more specific? Yeah. Are there some things that look to be broader? Sure. But, but let's use caution here because we, we don't want to invite the criticism that we are delegitimizing all of our scripture by how we're interpreting it. Because sometimes we can look a little foolish in the way scripture is interpreted. Now, over the centuries, uh, these verses have been kind of clung on to to defend certain practices. Obviously, uh, society was more male-centric in the past, and so people had no problem with these verses. It was just the way of the world. Uh, conflict begins to start as women um, and, and females begin to have more of a prominent role in society uh, through the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's all wonderful uh, progress and change in our world. Uh, but the church had a problem because they'd been doing it this way for so long. And now society no longer uh, kind of went along with what they interpreted this scripture to mean. So we have conflict today over this issue. Um, and what I'll say is this. I know I have good brethren that I love that worship in congregations that uh, have women that participate in leadership and in worship um, uh, and teaching. And I love them and I accept them. And uh, I know I have good brethren uh, who feel the opposite and who attend churches where that's not done. And I love them and I accept them. Um, and I know that where you're coming from may be different. So I'll just speak to the churches of Christ. That's, that's what I come from. Churches of Christ have a tradition of women do not participate in the leadership or in the public worship service. And we've made a lot of really interesting little rules, like women can teach other women or women can teach children's classes. But if there is a baptized male in that class, the women can no longer participate in teaching it because they'd be violating uh, this passage. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> we have to be careful we don't take it too far because it can be a little ridiculous. But let's take this in the context of we're reading someone else's mail and let's break it down a little bit. First of all, we have some instruction here about modesty and about modest dress. Oh boy, that would be opening a can of worms to talk about, okay? And I understand there's a lot of feelings on both sides. Uh, and I think every generation struggles with this because fashion changes and it tends to change in a way that feels more immodest to each previous generation. Um, I have a teenage daughter. 
we have to fight this battle. I work with a Christian church camp. Um, we have to fight this battle. And it's a balance. Um, I, again, we must acknowledge there have been some hurtful and damaging things said and done in this regard where women and young girls feel that all of the pressure is on them and they are to be blamed if a man has bad thoughts. Uh, my response to that is absolutely not. People are accountable to their own thoughts, but people are also accountable for their actions um, that influence and affect others. Um, so let me put it this way, and this is how I try to explain it to people when, when we have these conversations. Yes, you should be able to wear what you're comfortable in and what makes you feel good. You should. And in a perfect world, you would, because no one would care. I mean, look at the Garden of Eden. They were naked, but they didn't care because sin was not a part of the world. The minute it was, it changed the way they saw each other and themselves. So yeah, I'd love it if anybody could just wear what they want and express themselves and feel comfortable and, and feel good. I would love it if I didn't struggle to not look at certain things or think certain things. I would love that. But sin is in the world and it's in my heart sometimes and I struggle against that particular sin. So both sides of the equation, men and women, are struggling with the pressure and the focus of this idea of modesty. And we have to somehow balance this. So I'd, I'd put it this way. Young men, well, men in general, old men, young men, and in between, you need to be accountable to your thoughts, you need to be accountable for your actions, and you need to pursue, pursue purity and seeing women as your sisters in Christ and as souls that God cares for and Jesus died for. So men, we have a long way to go in fighting this battle against lust. Women of all ages, you are not responsible for the lustful thoughts of men. That is their own responsibility. However, we are to act with love toward one another. And as they are to see you as sisters in Christ and as people, souls that are loved by God and whom Jesus died for, you should see them the same way. And your liberty in Christ, your freedom, the, the just freedom that you should have is not a justification for not thinking about, caring about, and loving them too. And so both sides need to learn that lesson in the argument on modesty, all right? Men, you can't just keep blaming women if you can't control your eyes and your thoughts. And women, you need to understand that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Because it is not loving if you wear something that you know is provocative and then expect that a man needs to be able to control himself. And I would look at it this way. Um, I have friends who are recovering alcoholics or addicts of various kinds. I know this about them. I respect them and love them. Um, would I ever put them in a position to break that sobriety? Do I have the right to hand them an adult beverage? Sure. Is that the right thing to do? If they were to drink it, 
if they were to break their sobriety, uh, if they were to fall off the wagon, whose fault is that? It's their fault because it's their choice. But did I show them love by putting them in that situation? So men and women, we need to, we need to work together on this thing. Now, the specifics of what here, we understand, we read that and we say, well, that's cultural. You know, the braided hair and the jewelry and the makeup and all this. We know that's cultural. But go right to the next verse and the cultural argument goes out the window. Because if you talk to someone who believes very strongly in the doctrine that women don't have leadership position in church, you say, well, isn't that verse cultural? And they say, well, absolutely not. It's not cultural because, uh, because Paul says that there's two reasons. Adam came first in terms of creation and Eve was the one deceived by the serpent. And that's the justification for this rule that Paul puts in place. And I say, well, that means it's not cultural. Well, the rule put in place can itself be cultural. So we have to be careful and acknowledge this. Um, it's really hard for me to get my head around the argument that the modesty instruction is cultural, but the teaching and quietness part is not cultural. I'm just to be fair with you. If there's an argument to be made about men's and women's roles in church, that's not the one that I think works the best. And again, I have friends and fellow Christians on both sides of this argument, and I love them both. But let's get to the heart of this. And I don't mean to solve the problem. I mean, how do we deal with it? Okay. Again, if you're in a congregation where you feel fulfilled and useful and, and fed spiritually and led spiritually, by all means, um, I think that's important. I do know that sometimes because we have that tradition, particularly in churches of Christ and in a lot of more conservative Protestant movements, we've drawn some doctrine out of this particular verse in this particular passage. And it's lasted and it's followed and it's part of tradition now. And some believe it's not just part of tradition, but it's part of God's holy design for the church. And that's fair. But it does cause some trouble. Now, some women are perfectly fine with it. They could care less. Some feel very much like their voice is not heard or respected or honored in their church. I want to propose this to you as just kind of a, a compromise of ideas here, okay? I think we have to be willing to understand that ideas on these things do evolve, that context is important when we interpret scripture, that literal, figurative, and cultural distinctions are important when we interpret scripture. And that above all, a mutual respect for the differences that we encounter is important. It's also important to ask yourself, is standing on that stage on Sunday morning, is that, is that what I'm after? Is that what it means to have my voice honored and heard? Now, for some people, sure, sure. But it is not the only way that we can honor and hear and support our Christian women. It is one way, but it's not the only way. And so I just offer this in, in the grand scheme of the argument because I think we all have our opinions, okay? And, and I'm of the opinion that above all, because we're going to differ on this, let's have some mutual respect and mutual love for one another. But... I'm also of the opinion that we do not need to be glorifying the position 
of the preacher, the song leader, the elder, or anybody else in a leadership or public role in worship to the point that those who might not be participating in it feel like that's their only way to participate. Does that make sense? While I understand that there are some who feel that they are marginalized by the gender specificity of certain roles in church, I get it. But I also think that part of the reason for that marginalization is both men and women have placed far too much emphasis on who's up front and who's leading. We can honor the voices of our women in a lot of different ways, and every community of faith should seek to do that. And whether your community of faith feels that's necessary by having public worship leadership roles for women or not, I think it's something we ought to be working harder and pursuing because we've let these verses abuse people and we should be careful with that. So do consider the historical context of chapter two, okay? He's calling for purity. He's calling for humility. He's calling for people who are, who are prepared emotionally, mentally, spiritually to pray. Men, have pure hearts so that when you lift your hands to God, they are holy and pure. And women, don't be chasing after the attention of the world, okay? But chase after the attention of God with the, the, the things you do, the good things you do. And be aware, and I, I, you know, I believe there's some specificity here in the historical context that Paul was saying we need to we need to make some changes about how we approach women in this particular case because there's dangers in Ephesus to the faith. And I'll point this out about Paul. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Paul himself sent his letter to Rome, the Rome the Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans. He sent that letter with a woman. She was the courier of the letter. And she arrived. And what would be done with a letter sent to a group of Christians in a city? What do you suppose they did? Traditionally, the bearer of the letter would stand publicly in the synagogue or in the meeting place of the Christians and read it out loud. Paul sent a woman to preach. Now, however you feel about this issue, that's fine. Because I have my feelings as well. But we do have to acknowledge it. Paul says he doesn't permit women to teach or have authority, but he himself sent women to preach to Christians in other parts of the world. Context is king, and we need to remember that. Be careful with 1 Timothy chapter 2, okay? Next time, we're going to talk about those elders, those overseers, those bishops, pastors, uh, and, and whatever other word we use. Um, that's next time when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you then.